Hi everybody, I'm Wendy Murdoch and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing this series of webinars during the pandemic largely to keep uh, me entertained and for my own education, but they've proven to be really, really informative and everyone's enjoying them so much that I've just continued to do them. This is number 78 and today my guest is Lucinda Baker. We met uh, a little over a year ago, um, Memorial Day weekend in 2019, when Lucinda organized a workshop, and it was fabulous because Dr. Stephen Peters and Sharon Wilsey were there. And so when I've known Dr. Peters, and of course we've had him on the webinars twice now, and Sharon's our most, uh, uh, we've had her the most frequently. She's done six of these webinars. So it's really nice to bring Lucinda in because she was part of that whole gathering that we had that she organized, which was really fantastic and people really enjoyed it. Um, so if you have any questions as we go along, please just put it in the chat or the q and I'll ask them as it's appropriate. And um, I'm gonna ask Lucinda to please give us her background and introduce herself here. And um, she's gonna talk to us today about ethology and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of different things. So welcome Lucinda, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you and Wendy, I just wanna say thank you for inviting me, this is really special. And um, I hope I can give some information that will be helpful to people. Um, I started writing, you know, typical kind of story when I was four, went into hunter jumper, trained with a very uh, eccentric person, Jimmy Williams. Oh yeah. And <laughs> it was quite a, quite a ride. Yeah, I bet. And, <laughs> until I was about 15 then I got out of horses I found boys in school and um, so besides that then I uh, ran a company I was a CEO uh, for 30 years got back into horses when I was about 46 and that's one of the stories in the book that I sent you of being heard um, that I wrote about little Nemo and how I got back into the whole uh, world of horses again. Uh, so I've been a teacher, a researcher, a CEO, you know, I, I have a lot of, when you get to be 67 years old, you have a lot of information that you are able to share with people. So um, that's kind of me in a nutshell. We live in Bend, Oregon. Uh, I'm married to my husband of 32 years. And, you know, we have 30 head of horses here. We use the horses for both teaching um, and people uh, come and board a little bit. So we have a pretty busy life here in Bend, Oregon. And it's been very interesting to get creative uh, with the COVID uh, situation going and, and still continue to teach. So that's kind of uh, it in a nutshell. That's awesome. And so um, tell us, you know, ethology is this word that, it keeps coming up, but I, it's not a word I, w I grew up with, and it's not a word I heard during my university training. Um, you know, I have, uh, I was an animal science major, and then I went back and got a master's degree in equine reproductive physiology. But I, I feel like the term kind of came after I left a university setting, which now is quite a while ago. Um, so can you define ethology for us? Basically, ethology is the study of any animal behavior. So the difference between 
what ethologists started to do, it actually, ethology has been around for about a hundred years, but nobody knew because there was only about three people that were practicing and exploring the idea of testing um, and researching animals out of the laboratory. So uh, E.O. Wilson, Pavlov, they were of a different elk and those were called behavioralists. And they, they brought animals in to a laboratory and gave them human tests. Right. Whereas ethology, yeah, right. So then ethology came along, kind of, you know, mostly by um, uh, Louis Leakey and Jane Goodall. Jane was one of the very first people to go into the habitat in the wild and live close to amongst the chimpanzees. So the two different thoughts were, so the story goes, you go to the desert, I drop you off with a horse in the middle of the desert and I say, go find water. And of course you're wandering around going, oh my God, the horse immediately starts walking towards an area that probably has water. So how intelligent is that? So then you have, you take the horse to New York City and say, find a bank. So how intelligent is that? So it's based on the environment of where intelligence shines. And it's not on brain size. It is not on anything except for horses, animals develop for their environment and they are incredibly intelligent in that environment. So ethology took that and ran with it. Also, the other person that people would be familiar with is Temple Grandin. Oh, she is also an ethologist. So that's where the study started going towards. And basically, there's almost nobody that that practices uh, the behavioralist world anymore, which is the one that you would be familiar with or most people would be familiar with. So ethology now is equine ethology, the study of horses in their natural behavior. So in other words, it's, we've been doing this, but we haven't really used the term. And so that's, I think that's the piece for me, because I remember very clearly um, reading books about a a man in in Great Britain, and he would take the horses far away from his home and turn them loose, and they would find their way home. I can't remember his name. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm -mm. Um, Oh, these were great. He wrote two books, but basically he, he was looking at horses' intelligence in their environment you know, just what you described. And I have to find them. I think they're in my library. But literally, he would like take these horses away and turn them loose. And then they would navigate their way home, which is obviously exactly what we're talking about. That's Um, right. Yeah, I'm going to have to find those books. But I and so this is kind of the thing for me. It's like, I think I've known about this, but I haven't known about the term that we have put with it. And so uh, that was the confusion for me is like, wait a second. Um, but as you describe it, it makes so much sense. And of course, looking at a horse in his natural environment, that's where he's going to shine in terms of his capabilities. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure you agree that we see different levels of intelligence in that environment, if you will. Um, some horses are quicker to figure things out. I had one that was really quick to figure things out. Um, and others that were a little slower and, you know, you could put up a little strip of fence and they go, okay, I can't cross that. Yes, right. Well, and domesticated horses, of course, are so much different than wild horses. Mm -hmm. And wild horses, of course, are not necessarily 
uh, horses that have always been wild. Here in the West, we have horses that are called Mustangs, and they are not necessarily um, from some old breed that came from the forests. They're basically horses that were let loose through centuries of Indian ownership or the people coming across in the, you know, in the 1800s and stuff. So, so wild horses. A more appropriate term? Yes, feral would be a much more appropriate term. And the reason that that is, um, in, the reason that that's so interesting for me is that the um, behavior of the domestic horse still retains much of what they needed to survive in the wild. So when I bring a wild horse in, I've, I've started many uh, Mustangs. I was part of the TIP program, which brings Mustangs in and you get paid to teach them to lead and pick up their feet for adoption. And they are highly, highly sensitive much, much more sensitive. Their sensory um, organs, all of them, perception is way higher attuned to little tiny, tiny things where I find the domestic horse is way less so. Um, so that's, that's been very interesting to work around that because it's actually sometimes when I'm working with a horse, I long to go and just be with a domesticated horse when I'm working with a wild horse because it's so exhausting. Because they're, they're so much quicker to pick up on very subtle things, whereas the domesticated horse, you can kind of, if you will, make some mistakes or have larger movements and they're not going to react to it. Well, they, they react, but they don't react as um, intensely. Ah, okay. So the recover time and the down regulation time is much quicker. Right. You can move, move forward quicker. And then, um, but I'm sure there's times when you, when you have uh, worked with one of these uh, horses that you've brought in and that, that sensitivity actually can act to your advantage. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because if you know it, you have to know what to do with it. You're doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Timing, timing becomes like feel and timing become like this thing you can't even think about. So you've got to be experienced in it. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I find it interesting and we could get off on many tangents, I think here, um, that in, in order to deal with a more sensitive horse, we obviously have to be more sensitive in ourselves. Um, and that required, <laughs> you're smiling. <laughs> um, but you know, there, there's a time and a place to have a, a horse that's uh, more dull or more less sensitive. And certainly when people are learning to ride, this is one of the things that I so appreciate with these horses because it gives the riders a chance to make mistakes. And the horse is like, don't worry, I've got your back. And you really didn't mean that. Whereas if we're on a more sensitive horse, he would respond to that and we would think it was reaction. Um, and then we could wind up in um, some serious trouble because they're doing what we said and we didn't know it. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, signals are, so that, and, and that's why um, I teach and talk about so much about the horse's worldview. Mm. That is the key to ethology. That is what we are studying. 
is not our perception onto the horse and their behavior, but their actual behavior. I studied under Dr. Martha Kyle Worthington out of um, France. I started 18 years ago and she had probably one of the first or people that had a PhD in ethology in both equine and unfortunately I don't know the proper name for elephant, but it, she also had a PhD working with elephants in Africa, Tanzania, I think. Um, and so when I started, so I'm going to go ahead and tell the Nemo story because the Nemo oh, yeah. story is very, very important. That I, when I got back into horses, I got a little Arab. He was a little 14 hand Arab, but he had never, ever been out of the arena. And at that time, I had no idea that was important because I wanted to trail ride. So I did not know how, what that meant. So I went ahead and got on my board at him at Monty Roberts place in Santinez, California. And I was, didn't know anything about natural horsemanship or anything. And I, every time I got on that little horse uh, to go for a little trail ride around, just even on the property, I got dumped. And I, because he was scared, he was scared of everything. And I didn't, for me at that time at my age, I thought it was kind of fun. I mean, it was, I did, I wasn't worried about it. I, he, and when he, when we did that, it wasn't, you know, he wasn't, he was just scared. So he'd skit more than buck. So we, so as I was going next five years of having him, we went to, once I found out about natural horsemanship, I went to Buck Brannaman. I spent, spent, oh, three weeks with Ray Hunt. I went to Dennis. I did all of these clinics, probably five years, literally spending about $50,000 um, in clinics. I learned a lot. I don't discount what I learned at all. But they were missed. I, I, I could tell we were missing, they were missing something of telling me because I, his little, when we would be driving, riding down the trail, his head would swing to the right and to the left. He wasn't doing it in a scared thing with his head up and snorting. His head was down and he would look to the left and to the right. I mean, the whole trail ride. So it was incredibly uncomfortable. I mean, he's, un, I'm un, you know, he's under me with his head moving the whole time. So... <laughs> Yeah, really <laughs> uncomfortable. So, so finally, one day I'm going along and I'm thinking to myself, what are you looking at? So I didn't mess with him, his head. I mean, I really wanted to know what he was looking at. So I looked out of the distance of where he was looked this way. And then I, he turned his head and I looked that way. And I really looked and I stayed with him while, I, while his head was turned. After five years, his head came quiet. I'm like, okay, okay, we have done bounce. We have made the wrong thing hard. We've made the right thing easy. We've gone around bushes. I'm going to get to his feet. I'm doing all of these things over and over, and I could never stop this. And then one day I just look where he's looking and pay attention to his concerns. The whole time, that I was writing him, he was actually trying to take care of us by keeping an eye out all over in deep into the forest while we were writing. I had no idea at that time that's what he was doing and how 
important he felt his job was. Once I found that out, I realized there was more to the horse world than just the natural horsemanship, which I don't discount. I don't discount anything is not non-abusive to horses and training. Uh, but that was not my problem. My problem was that he, I, that his head was. So I went ahead and I started researching and I found Martha, Dr. Worthington, and she was the only one I could find that was, that had been studying and had a degree in equine ethology. So I, I got bought every book. I started researching and reading, reading. I contacted her. I asked her if I, you know, I mean, she's in France. I'm here. You know, it was, Zoom was not available back then. Uh, so there was a lot of emailing. So I went ahead uh, and followed that thread and learned about the horse's world view. Once this Say that again. What year was that? Approximately? Um, I have all this written down. For I am really bad about time, but I think I got, I found her in 2000 and five or six maybe i was just yeah. Curious. Yeah. yeah like 18 so years ago whatever that kind of equates to um then after i worked with her for a very very long time then she said you know she started getting into the neurology into mm -hmm. the neuroscience and she and she we started talking about it, and i'm like oh my god this is so exciting so i got into it and so we started finding out about the central nervous system and the brain and the autonomic system. And then we really started understanding and getting a really good feel for how the horse perceives the world. Okay. And because of all of the equipment now that we were able to use an fMRI and being able to test for cortisol levels and what have you, even though we couldn't put the horse in an fMRI, we could tell from people being in them that people were being elevated up into the sympathetic nervous system and then coming down to homeostasis and then going to the parasympathetic and we were able to relate all of what we have learned plus observations thousands of hours of written observations, putting all that together, uh, we really started understanding even more so about the horse's worldview. And the reason that that's so important is, and that was one of the things that I've written, uh, I just posted a blog, mm -hmm. is about eyes. Um, so many people do not understand or don't, why would they understand? Because it's so foreign to our own concept of vision is that a horse can see, I don't know if you want me to go into this. I'm gonna start, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, okay. there's so, there's I mean, so- we have, we have the blog, so if you can just kind of give us the, the, the silly- nutshell. Horses do not, okay, so if I'm walking through a ranch yard with equipment, people are coming and going, there's other horses. When I'm walking through, I see 90 degrees of what's going on and I am a focus because I'm a predator, I'm focused on getting through that yard and to that point. A horse, when they're walking with me, is looking 340 degrees and not only that, their ear follows which sounds they're hearing. Their eyes will focus as best they can 
on where their ear is is pointing. So their whole, all their sensory perceptions all focus on where their ear and their eye. See, their eye does not move. The pupil does not move. It is a slit and it is scanning all the time. Human beings daydream 80% of the time. Horses don't dream at all. Daydream at all. None at all. So that means every waking moment, every moment they are scanning with their ears, with their body, they can hear vibrations through their feet, as you know. So they're using their whole being in figuring out and listening and wondering about their world and bringing in that information and doing identification. So when you're walking and focusing and the horse behind you kind of shies or skittles a little bit and you're like, hey, what's the matter? You turn around and look where they maybe, you thought maybe the, the thing was and it's all quiet back there because you missed it. So when then we're like, hey, what's, there's nothing back there. You're okay. Let's keep going. But they've had an experience now that if that experience is not acknowledged and their concern is not acknowledged to their satisfaction, they will carry that maybe all the way to the trail ride to the stream and then get, then buck you off because they've been carrying this and building and building and building and building until they just can't handle it anymore. So, yeah. Well, and one of the things I so often hear horse people say that disturbs me is, you know better than that. Horses don't know better than that. Um, and certainly what you've just described reinforces that horses don't know better than that because if we're, you know, we go past a rock and think there's nothing there, but that might be smelling something that wasn't there yesterday. They might've heard something now that wasn't there yesterday. Suddenly this thing that they should know better about isn't the same thing, but we- Well, and that's, that's right. That's absolutely right. And that's why the visual, because when they look at that rock, it's a fuzzy thing. They, most of what they see is blurred. They yeah. don't have the sharpness and the acuity that we do in vision. So dark things and light things really, really become a thing. Right. And yeah, they, they just don't see it the same as we do. So, um, so I know that at some point you met Dr. Peters. <laughs> um, and I'm just curious about how, when or how that came about. I wrote his, I read it because once I saw that somebody had writ, written a book I don't even know how I found his book or where I got it, but was a lot, was right after they uh, wrote it, him and Martin Black. And I got a hold of it and I was so excited because I was the only person besides Martha in France that was addressing or talking about it. So I, I mean, I, I contacted him right away and I actually, um, I asked him, I said, where his, where his um, bibliography was in the back of the book, because as far as I could tell, people who did proper research and did proper invest, you know, did the work um, of a researcher always had that in the book back. So he emailed me back and he says, well, I can tell you're serious. You asked me. And he said they didn't want him to put it in there because they wanted to get it out and doing, taking care of that information can take almost as long as, as writing a book. 
it's very arduous. Yeah, no, I, I, I um, read Dr. Peter's book and I was like, I was so excited about that book, but I was like, this is a zip file. It needs to get expanded. That was my, yes. Like, you know, yeah. can you just triple the content? And I would be really happy. <laughs> yes. And there's actually a lady now who has from uh, Jones, Dr. Jones, who just pr printed and published a book called Human Brains, Horses Brains. Oh, it might be I, Horses Brains. I saw, the, I saw the cover. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, I, I got the book. I read it. Uh, and, and she's really right on. She's, got, she's, did, she's done the work. And it has expanded. And oh. not only that, the thing that's very interesting is that um, she included the human brain while working with being like writing what is happening to our brains while we are writing. And that was the thing that I thought she really, um, that was exciting to, to do that because we think about them separately a lot, but they're not just like when you just started, when you said, we're, we kind of leave ourselves out of the equation sometimes. Yeah. Instead of us going together. Right. Yeah. Well, that's all. I'm going to have to get a copy of her book and, and read that. Maybe I'll have to have her as a guest. Um, yes. Let me know. I want to be there. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Because I think that uh, for me, you know, as a, uh, a research scientist, coming from the neurology perspective to me makes so much more sense because that's running the show. And uh, I'm not, I don't want to negate the, the behaviorist model, but we also have to think about, you know, this whole idea of what's happening chemically that's driving a system. Because, uh, you know, if Vegas is unhappy and feeling threatened and we get these chemicals flowing through the brain that are stress chemicals, and so we don't even, even though we get the horse doing the action that we want, it doesn't necessarily mean it's doing it in the way we want it, in the, in the calmness that we really need for that horse to feel secure. And safety and security are such a number one priority for horses people too yeah yeah well yeah you, you know and and it's it's actually pretty simple stay calm equals being feeling safe mm. great it's great. not a hard thing intellectually but try doing that when you just got off the phone with your boss and they told you that they just cut your hours or the horse just has been transported and has come into an, a new environment how do you do that then? How do you go ahead and get to calm and get to zero quickly, efficiently, and the way that the horse understands? Again, horse's worldview. So, and, and that's the thing that's so exciting about Sharon's work and, and your work and Dr. Peter's work and my work is that now we're able, now we're really starting to uh, have the tools that we need in order to get that calm that we need very quickly and to train everybody to down regulate quickly, even ourselves. Right. Because if we right. don't, if we don't learn how to down regulate from a thing, if we don't can't come down quickly, we can never expect the horse to come down either. Right. It takes, it, we, it, we have 51% of the deal. We have to be the ones that are leading the charge on the situation. And it's interesting because as soon as I started um, addressing and acknowledging all of my horse's concerns, so as I'm walking through a 
just walking from one paddock to the S, if a horse is concerned about something, I stop. I look, I listen, I respond, and I want to be there to support them. And, and as Sharon says, blow away the boogeyman. Um, and someone's just asked Sharon who it's Sharon Wilsey, who's written a book called Horse Speak. She has a whole system called Horse Speak. And it's Stephen Peters. And I'll just put this in the chat. Uh, the book is Evidence-Based Horsemanship. Right. And, and uh, the Nemo story and the Diego story is the being heard. And the reason that I wrote, and the reason I did that, it was nice to share a nice story, but I wanted people to understand um, how that, um, how it came about and what they can do right now, tomorrow, today. They go out with their horse, the horse is concerned about something. If they will acknowledge that concern, they will have a better chance of getting that horse down towards homeostasis. And, and what's the title of the new book that, we, that you mentioned? The, is it Horses Brain, Human Brain? I think so. It's either that or it's Human Brain, Horses Brain. <laughs> Yeah, Dr. Jones. So if somebody goes into Amazon and kind of puts that. Yeah, the cover has a horse and a person. I, I, in an yes, with their brain. Yeah. Yep, I can see it in my head, but I, you know. Um, so, um, so you, and then you met Sharon, you hooked up with Sharon. And I think for me, what Sharon does is, is, um, help make this understandable in small bits for people to yeah. put it together. But what you're doing there at Bentwire is you're actually taking people in and working with horses. And so they get the practical experience of looking at these concepts and ideas in action. Is that right? Right. Yeah. I, my, I have a mandala. You can't see it. It's about there. And it has, the mandala has four sections. One is a, for the uh, neurology, the neuroscience. One is for the ethology, which is the horse's worldview. Then there's learning to learn, which is release and pressure, which is different than pressure and release a little bit. And then there's horse speed. For me, in my mind, when I'm teaching, I need all four of those to make it for a complete uh, experience and be able to understand what, and truly understand what the horses need. So when let's need, talk a little right? bit about that third quadrant there, um, release and pressure. Yeah, it, the, the common thing, because uh, that has to do, uh, um, uh, pressure and release has to do with operate conditioning. Correct. And that means that, you know, you raise a whip, it doesn't, the horse doesn't do anything, but the next time you raise the whip and hit the ground, the horse jumps. So then the next day you raise the whip, you don't do anything, but the horse moves away. That is the basics of operant conditioning. So if you put pressure, and that's what the natural horsemanship world is all about, is releasing the pressure when you get the right answer. So if I ask the horse to back up one step, and I'm putting the pressure on it, and they do that, they take one step, and I release that pressure, I'm basically saying to them, yes, that's the correct answer. So when I do that, that is called what they call pressure and release. And that's more very common. But what I realized that through my teaching is people were coming in and they were so uptight from traffic, learning their mom's sick, they forgot the groceries, whatever. 
that they needed to first relax and release, then ask for what the, what the task was going to be. If they didn't, they forgot to follow through all the way from a beginning, a middle, and an end because of their anxiety. And with a horse takes up to a minute to three minutes to process a new thought. If we would sit here and not talk for one minute, we'd have everybody crawling out of their skin. Mm-hmm. But that is how long it takes a horse to really comprehend what it is that you're asking them to do. So when somebody comes along for a new task, that's why they say the slightest try gets the greatest reward. So that when you're teaching a horse something new, how important that is. And um, another, the, how important that information is, but also dwell time. People don't move way too fast for their horses. They're asking for too many things to be done too quickly. The horse does not have the time to process that information. They're still back on what you ask them to do the first and second thing. And you're on the number eighth and ninth thing and wondering why they're not doing the eighth and ninth thing. It's because they're still processing the first and second thing you ask them to do. Now, once they've learned something from cues, then their myelination and their brain has strengthened. The pathway to the brain is all set for being able to play that piano where they first started playing. It was tong, tong, tong. So once that gets into the horse's brain and they learn, and that's why practicing the right way correctly to begin with is so important, not only for the horse, but for the person. You practice, if you practice something and you keep practicing it incorrectly, you are actually building the pathway stronger for that incorrect information. And therefore it takes longer to get to from A to B for what you really wanted. And hence why that's so important for coaching, for videoing ourselves, for seeing a professional. That is what those people are for, is to not to make sure you're practicing correctly. So that is, um, yeah. Well, you really fantastic points because like through my experience with Surefoot, one of the things that I keep telling people is that most of the horses, when we're looking at them, they're what I call pushed. They're already into a, a stressed position and they might appear calm, but they really are not internally okay. They're in some degree of what Robin Hood coins slush. So freeze, you know, can't move, but slush going through motions, but not really present due to some degree of stress. And, and so what I find is these horses that they seem okay, they really aren't. And when we actually start to work with Surefoot and reduce the, the anxiety and reduce the sympathetic, you start to really see that. And some horses actually have adverse reactions at first because they're stressed and everybody thinks they're okay. They're really not. Um, yeah. But real good learning, we need to get those horses where they are truly in a, sa- a sense of safety, a, a safe place. Um, yeah. and that has to do with the polyvagal theory. Absolutely. Yeah. Too, which is really an important theory. And, and um, I'm, I'm glad that 
that the equine neuroscientists are now really starting to share that information, um, not only for horses, but for ourselves. Right. Pretty important uh, stuff. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, all of this new wave that we're on. And one of the reasons I like Sharon's work so much is, first of all, she took the science words sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic nervous, homeostasis, and all this, and came up, up with a language that was much more accessible, saying that when you're up and you're sympathetic, you're X. When you're do down closer toward homeostasis, you're O. So it gave a visual without too many big, trying to comprehend these big words and everything, and it quickly were able to, for people to start learning how to feel. Right. Can you just define homeostasis? I mean, uh, just just for our audience here, so they have an idea what we're talking about. Okay. So this, uh, I it's difficult to talk about homeostasis without talking about the, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous okay. system. So the autonomic nervous system, which those two are, those three things are in. They, it's like a. Um, it's like hot and cold. So the sympathetic might be hot and the parasympathetic would be cold. And right in the middle where everything is just right is homeostasis. The reason that that is so, why reasons homeostasis is so important is that that is where all mammals biological systems are able to really um, repair, our cells repair the best there. Um, our minds get the best rest there. There are, our, our biological systems crave that time of homeostasis. So if we are constantly in stress, like you were talking about, or a horse is, then the sympathetic nervous system where they are, their uh, eyes are, their lungs, their, their internal organs have gotten ready to fight or flight or freeze. So everything about them, they suck in their guts, they expand their lungs, their eyes dilate, and they're ready to run or fight. When you get down into the parasympathetic nervous system, all of a sudden you are resting, you're digesting. That's where you might have, uh, you know, have sex. Um, all of that is where that has to be. So homeostasis is right in the middle and it's where we have a resting place. That's where all horses want to be. And I have a rabbit story and I'll tell you real quick. So there's two rabbits they are in a meadow and one of them is a gray rabbit is bouncing around, having the most fun ever, bouncing and running around. The other rabbit is slowly, slowly just nibbling. The little brown rabbit is just nibbling away. Coyote comes. Which one does the coyote go after? The gray one, the one that used yeah. up all its energy. Yeah. So horses are exactly the same. They do not want to use any energy at all that is not purposeful so that is why when i'm teaching we always make sure we have a job to do 
whether it be going and, and taking some ribbons off of a, a pole or we just are going to go and check the fence, even though the fence doesn't need checking. As far as work, the horse is concerned, we have a job to do in our mind. If we keep that in mind while we're handling the horse, the horse goes, okay, I'm in. But if we're just diddle-daddling, oh, to do on the phone, you know, and we're doing circles or we're just asking them to kind of do things that make absolutely no sense to them, all they're worried about is they're using up all their energy because in their brain, that's the most important thing is energy, when to spend it, space, all of those things come into play for their safety. If they don't feel safe, they won't feel calm. And if they don't feel calm, they can't learn. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, so much of what you're talking about just makes me think about people because we're both mammals. In fact, there's a lot of mammals out here. Um, and we are designed the same in this way. Uh, and so I often relate back, and I think that's what that, that uh, book, Horses Brain, Human Brain is going to do, is how similar we are in these functions. Um, and in these survival mechanisms that are innate to mammals. And so the polyvagal theory, can you just, um, somebody's asked if you can just kind of briefly describe that, because again, this is a mammalian structure, a mammalian function for a purpose. Yes, so I have um, just um, started studying, it's Dr. Porges, he's yep. the one who came up with the polyvagal, and there's another lady who, her name is Deb Dana, and she wrote another book with, well, with the blessing of Dr. Porges. That's actually a little bit easier because it's, it's written for therapists, where um, Dr. Porges' book is written as a research, researched document expanded. So it's quite scientific and very, very, Dan, Deb Dana's is much more, much easier to comprehend in a shorter amount of time. What it is, is we have two nerves that go, one goes by the eye and around and to the heart, which is a newer one. There's two, two different ones developed. One developed when we had a, a repellent brain was developed. And then the second one was developed later on, which became our social system. Right, so the transcranial nerve is just two different, um, a ventral and a dorsal. Yes, thank you. Oh, yeah, you know what? <laughs> thank you very much. I didn't want to get too deep into stuff, okay. but all right, now let's do it. Um, so once you have the, the dorsal is the newer of the two or the vagal. Okay, so what happens and the thing that he found out is that when you are stressed to a point, you are immobile. You can't think. You can't make good decisions. When you get out of that, and when you're in the parasympathetic, you can't, you're, you're too relaxed. You're, and you're, you're still basically immobile. It's only when you're in this middle area that you are able to learn, uh, move, get away, think correctly if there's something coming. So that's kind of the basic, 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 you know, kindergarten version of it. You probably might even be able to expound on that much better. Well, I, I've, we've done some webinars on polyvagal. So if people want more information, you can go to the Sherfoot Equine YouTube channel. 
Um, Violet Van Hees has done two webinars and um, we've touched on it in some others. Um, but essentially this, the vagus nerve is our 10th cranial nerve. It's the largest nerve in our body. And there's a heart there section and a gut section. And it's really out there to figure out if we're safe. And right. it's our warning system. Um, yeah. And Good. when we don't feel safe, we have reactions in the nervous system to protect ourselves. But the problem with that protection is then we're not available. Um, and one, uh, I read a really good quote that um, we're wired for connection, but when we have trauma, we're wired for protection. And yeah. so in cases like PTSD, what happens is with the Vega system, it gets wired for protection, but that blocks us from connection. Um, yeah. And there's a whole, so I, whole social. Yeah. yeah, that was a great quote that I, 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 I can't remember where I got it from, but I did reference it in one of the webinars. Um, and with horses, you know, you can see that all the time. If they've had a trauma, they're now wiring for protection and you do something that you think might be okay. And they're like reacting really badly. Yeah. Um, whereas a horse that's not had that kind of experience and you do the same thing and they're seeking connection, like, oh, that was curious. What are you doing? Versus I am totally out of here. Um, yeah. uh, and it's, and it's the sad thing is, is that once that's learned, uh, you can't unlearn things. You can't unlearn trauma, but you can re rewire the brain. Right. So when I come back to the whole thing about addressing the concern, even though you're rewiring that, that brain for trauma, if they are falling back into that trigger that is triggering the trauma, if you will address it and move them away and get them focused by moving their feet, is the one thing that they have found is that once uh, a, somebody is in trauma, a horse is in trauma, not to stand still, move. Even if it's in a circle, do something that looks and feels like you're doing a job. And that has helped a lot of horses and people is this whole thing of doing a job. Because if they are traumatized, then it gets them moving, gets everybody's feet moving, and they can start coming out of that, that part of their brain. And it's, it's also related to how you discharge that vagal charge, if you will. Um, yeah. I've had the uh, uh, opportunity to work with some um, um, former Marines that were 80 to 100% disabled and working, they're working with horses. And, and one of the things that they have been doing with these men and women is um, teaching them things like leather craft and saddle making and hat making because the movement is really the key to releasing that trauma. And That's right. so, you know, I mean, you see the deer in the headlight, it freezes, but what does it do to discharge? It moves. Um, right. And so there's this whole connected piece of movement, which uh, feeds in. Um, and it's just, I, you know, I'm so excited about where we are right now in terms of our understanding, because I think it feels like we're on the precipice of, of taking wing and really getting a handle on how to help people and horses, um, and what optimum learning looks like, what optimum learning really is, not just what we, you know, sit at a desk and here you have to write or do what I say, I'm going to do it 10 times, but what, what, what is optimum learning? And one of the key things of that is how much rest does the system need for optimum learning? That's right. That's right. And that, you know, that comes in with uh, rest, uh, eating right and blah, blah, you know, all the other um, 
all the other things that come into it. You know, when you were talking, I was thinking about, oh, I saw a little comment at the bottom that somebody said, uh, distraction. Mm. So um, purposeful movement is the key, not just uh, distracting them with something else. Mm-hmm. Purposeful mm-hmm. movement, whether it be, um, like you said, you talked about the human doing leather work or something, but you, it has to be purposeful movement. Uh, again, horses don't take lightly. They don't understand, and it can be concerning for them if they're just doing things randomly, and especially if they're doing them too fast. So doing something too fast just to distract them could cause them to go higher into the sympathetic opposed to coming back down and getting quieter a job that's right yes yeah, i said think it. that's a really good point because um if you're concerned and you're trying to figure something out but you're being you know made to do too much you, you can't process and you're trying to process and you can't process so i do think that's a really good point that um the that it has purpose um and sp- I'm not sure that speed is really a requirement here as much as clarity. I, yeah, I think yes. speed is something you want to yeah. decrease. Stay away from. Yeah. Yeah. Staying away from speed in horses, with horses, unless they're trained to go into very high speeds is traditionally, or not maybe not traditionally, but just isn't a good idea. Right. Going slower and waiting on them. A lot of times people will walk off and I'll say, where are you going? You forgot to take your horse because they're going, they're in, in their brains and they're going, but they're, they forgot to connect first with the horse and go, let's go together. Yeah. Opposed to, I got, I see that over there. That's where we're going. Boom. And then the horse is like wondering where they're going. And then, oh, we're going there. Oh, okay. So taking your horse with you is really important. Yeah, and you know, that's a lot bigger body. It takes, it can take some time to get from the front to the back. And if we, if we rush that process, if we don't acknowledge, and this is where Sharon's work, again, comes in, is that you can see it process through and you see the tail flick and you're like, oh, yes. okay, the message got all the way through. Now we can do something. Yeah. Um, acknowledging that, you know, I, where I see that the most is when people... Uh, are leading their horse and they stop and they think the horse should be able to stop at that speed where they're just two legs and you've got this whole momentum coming and without a preparation to stop without something to say we're going to stop yeah so you know and that's one of the things i'll say all the time you need to allow the horse to prepare for a transition they need to prepare for a transition and that takes at least, and Sharon would like this, three steps, because Sharon loves everything in threes. <laughs> but, but I do that. I'll tell people, okay, just give them three goes. One, two, and you know, that's what you do when you go, when you're going to jump over a fence. Mm. It's that last three beats is when you, you, you train for you and the horse to get connected to know that it's one, two, three, jump. So preparing for that transition in threes is really important. It'll help you keep the horse with you. <laughs> well, that's just it. It's, um, you know, we, we can think faster and we can move faster because we're a biped um, and we don't have the mass. So 
you know, what I, I always try to explain to people, you know, that head on a thousand pound horse is a 40 pound head at the end of a three foot lever arm. You know, when you think about the momentum of a head moving, it's huge. It's really huge. And then we just think nothing of kind of pulling it around. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's amazing that they put up with us. Yeah. Um, I mean, really. Can you, um, let's see, it, somebody wanted, uh, can you give us a visual of a job purpose for dressage? Often I feel bad for the horses because it seems there's no purpose from the horse's perspective. So it's interesting because as long as the person is imagining a job, the horse will follow suit. So, and because we're such good storytellers and we have great imaginations, we're, and, and she, did she say for just dressage? Yeah, sure. Her question is about dressage. Right. So the dress, so I was watching somebody and they were having a hard time doing a um, depart, depart canter. And they broke it down where they would go ahead and have the horse moving and then just go ahead and get them to cross over the left to the right just one time. Now that was the job. The horse doesn't know why we're going to go and look to fix the fence. They know nothing about fixing fences. They don't know that they're going to go and get some cattle uh, and why that's important. All they know is the intent behind what the person is asking them to do is the job. So if the person is asked uh, the horse to do something and they release after they've done it, so they, they have a task. You start the task off, you initiate, and then you're going to introduce, Sharon would like this also. Uh, <laughs> you introduce the task, but you have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. If you run all the tasks into one big thing, you'll lose the feel and the intention of the job. Yeah, centered yeah. writing, clear intention. Well, like, right. and I was going to say, you know, so, um, so much of it is is the intention, and that when we, uh, and this, you know, this is going to show up over and over in many different areas, but in the Feldenkrais world, is having clear intention, um, and that was something that I, I I have a memory of working with my mentor Mia Siegel, and a person was moving on the floor without intention, and she came over and just put her foot there and went, you know, like here's my foot, reach for my foot. And it completely changed the movement through the person's entire body because there was an intention of doing something. That's it. That's the job. And so I think that's the job is that it's not a random activity. And, and so often I see people um, will get into certain aspects of any kind of movement therapy, as a, and, but it becomes random. They lose the intention. Um, but yes. the minute that that's there, and it doesn't have to be a big intention, but it's a mm -hmm. focus, it changes yep. the way the whole thing flows. Um, right. So I had a lady that called me and she couldn't get her horse into the horse trailer. Horse has been a show horse. And she was scared to get into the trailer. So I went there and I took a whole bunch of, I cut up a whole bunch of baling twine string and I put, I, I covered the inside of the trailer tied up little pieces of string all the way to the front of it. And then I said to her, I said, now go untie all those with your horse and take your horse with you. And she got so into going and getting all of them and untying all of them. She was in the horse with the horse trailer. I said, now back him out. 
and she backed them out. And I said, okay, that'll be $150. <laughs> so it's, so it's the job. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's and, the job. and that's where, um, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the Tellington Jones work, but the, the, the labyrinth and the ground exercises and the poles, it gives focus and it creates a job. We're going to go yeah. around this corner. We're going to do it step by step, or we're going to step forward, but it slow movements, breaks it down with intention, paying attention to what we're doing with our own bodies, seeing the whole horse and how the movement moves through. Uh, you know, we keep coming back to these threads over and over and over. And that's what is so exciting um, is that, I th you know, we're getting now finally to understand on, um, on multiple levels how we need to learn, how we need to train, and, and how we need to then have that relationship with the horse because of our pre being present um, and providing that safe environment where then we have intention and they can follow our thoughts. Well, and the thing that's so exciting is all of this work that has to do with ethology and the neuroscience and Sharon's horse speak and uh, natural, all this stuff, all of the stuff that we're learning now can be used for any discipline. Yes, absolutely. It's not a new training technique mm -hmm. and it's evidence-based. It's not my opinion. Right. And that's the thing that is exciting for me because, you know, I, for when I first started off teaching, you know, people would say, well, that's your opinion. I'd be like, well, yeah, it is kind of, you know, yeah. But once I got into the ethology and the neuroscience and all of this, it's not my opinion anymore. And it can be used for any discipline. Right. And, actually, and that's the exciting part. Or things more than just horses, I think. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. 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 And then maybe that's the hard part because a lot of people want to get on their horse and go and ride. They don't want to necessarily have all this to kind of th have to think about. And it's difficult, you know, but it's better than ended up on the ground with a broken back. Oh, so, yeah. Well, yeah. and the other thing too, I think um, that when we look at learning this way and I often talk about, like when teaching writing, to make sure that the student has all the letters in the alphabet that they need to spell the words, like W-A-L-K or T-R-O-T. Um, but once you have that, then you can start adding some speed and adding some efficiency because what the brain does is it, it sheds the unnecessary neurons to run a pattern, makes the pattern more and more efficient. And then you can just have that great time of, you know, like my horse, I can put a saddle on six months sitting in the field and ride him out because he understands. Um, right. And that's the beauty of making sure that you've done the work is the, yes. reap the benefits of the ease um, yes. and that you don't have to keep repeating. Well, and the thing is, is that once you learn to get to calm, it doesn't matter where, how long it's been or where you are, you can be out on the trail with people, you could be at a show. When they learn that you can get, you can bring it down to calm, they start waiting for you, they start looking, they start. And I have had many horses that have been very, that are already calm horses that of course that are used in uh, therapy that we have 
a therapist that comes in here and uses the horses and the horses are working like gangbusters to get this person to calm down. And that's the other thing that Sharon's work just off the charts. I get people and they are stressed out and within 10, 15 minutes of really paying attention to what's going on and what the horse is saying and listening, all of a sudden they're taking big breaths, their shoulders are coming down, they're starting to listen and all of a sudden I get a little laugh and then I know I'm really there. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, Lucinda, we have blown through the hour and, and I know that you had a PowerPoint presentation, but we haven't gotten, and okay. Well, what I was going to say is um, maybe you'll come back and we can do that another time. Oh, you know, I'd be more than happy to. This was really fun. It's, I, it's really wonderful to be around people that are all on the same wavelength. And I, it's really and I, exciting. That's the thing that um, with the Zoom meetings, you know, like we're, we were all so busy in our lives doing what we do that trying to connect, like the opportunity I had to come to your place, I made that work because, you know, how yes. often do I get to be with Stephen Peters and Sharon Wilsey and you all in one spot, right? And, um, and so I made sure that that was going to work. But with Zoom now, we can actually um, recognize and find all our, all our points of light and bring them in. And that's, that's the thing that for me is so exciting. And there's one person we haven't mentioned that we have in common, and that's Julian Benyon. And oh, yes. Yep. Yes. And so I've had him as a guest on my webinars, and because he's now not far from me at all. He's here in Virginia. Um, yes. Yeah. And he was like, have you spoken to my friend Lucinda? And I said, not yet, but I will be. <laughs> yes, yes. I just asked him where to get a Cavasol. Oh, great. So he stared me in the right place. It was, it was very nice because I know nothing about dressage. Nothing. Okay. Well, oh. <laughs> that's a great resource for you. So it's yeah. just been an absolute pleasure. I want to thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for, for joining on this webinar. For me, this has been just great because it's brought in so many aspects into one place. So thank you, Lucinda. This is just And thank you. And thank you to all your people. Yep. And you can find this and all the webinars on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel and also on the surefootequine.com website. Now we have all the webinars listed up there and you can search for your favorite people using the keywords. Um, thank you all for joining us and I'll see you tomorrow with Tammy. We're going to have another fantastic webinar and I, that's also at one o'clock. So until then, thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye.